This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. The Trump administration has provided us with a day-by-day, sometimes hour-by-hour, never-ending series of scandals and abuses of power and blatant corruption. And I know it's hard to keep track of it all. I think Trump purposely uh, keeps us in a in a state of shock and outrage uh, so that sometimes I think this is on purpose so that his most most uh, disgusting crimes um, are never answered for and they're quickly forgotten. Perhaps the ugliest and most disgraceful period of the Trump administration uh, was when the details of his child separation policy. All right. See, we don't we haven't talked about this in a while because there's all this stuff going on. We're less than 60 days away from the uh, election. And what happens and I've talked about this, you know, we, we we really don't know what has happened to our environmental protection agency. I have no idea what lands the uh, Department of Interior gave away this past week to oil and gas companies. I mean, it just stuff that before where it would have been in the news, it would have been in the nightly news. It's just the stuff. There's so much in the, the national news, the nightly news on the networks, it's 30 minutes. It's a lot. It's a lot to keep track of, but this, the child, what they call the child separation policy and more popularly known as kids in cages at the U S Mexican border. When this uh, was revealed um, in these horrible conditions, horrible, horrible conditions that migrants were being kept in, and they became visible to the world. I think it really caught, it caught our attention, certainly caught mine. The images um, and the sounds of these kids in cages, kids being ripped from their parents' arms. Historians will n- take note of this. This will not be forgotten. This is, in part, how we will be remembered uh, during this era. I don't want it to be forgotten. And I don't want us not to be talking about it. And regardless of what happens with the election, this is this this thing that got set up isn't just going to disappear. I think on on January twentieth, and we have to make sure as citizens that something like this just never happens again, regardless who's in office. One of the journalists who has borne witness to these crimes against humanity is Jacob Soboroff of NBC News and MSNBC. You know him for his regular. Dispatches from the border, from the migrant uh, detainment facilities, and Jacob's reports. Every time uh, when this, as I remember back in, I think, 2018, when he started uh, these, um, started covering it, boy, it got, to, it got to a point after a few weeks where if you saw Jacob, they were getting ready to throw to Jacob Soberoff and you were going, oh, no, oh, no, this is... Um, you know, but, but, you know, I'm the kind of person where I, I believe you cannot turn the channel and you cannot turn away. You have to watch. We have to be informed no matter how harsh the reality is. And Jacob did such an incredible job with these stories. Um, and fortunately now, um, he has taken all of his reporting and written a new book. The book is called Separated Inside. An American Tragedy. This is one of the most powerful books of this year, and I personally want to encourage people 
to order a copy of this, to pick up a copy of it, go to the library, wherever, you know, you can't really go. Well, they'll meet you on the curb in a lot of, a lot of towns. Um, if you call in advance, but this, this is, you know, if, if I know a lot of you don't need any motivation to become active as citizens in the next uh, two months here, but this will fire you and your friends and your family up in a way that we need to be fired up. And I'm so grateful that Jacob has written this book and I'm very grateful that he is with me here on rumble today. Jacob, welcome. Michael, thank you so much for uh, that very generous introduction, and thanks for having me. The importance of a free press and to have media that uh, covers the things that, I mean, this is why we have we have journalism, because the rest of us can't be out there figuring out what's going on, seeing what's going on. And the fact that, that you've been willing to do this has been, you know, very powerful. I, I just, before we get going, I just want to ask, so... You, you know, week after week, month after month, um, we see you on this on this beat, uh, relentless covering uh, what the Trump administration has been doing. And then you and then you kind of disappeared. And I'm like, oh, no, they haven't taken them off the air here. They're not they're not they're certainly they're not saying, no, no, we just we need to put all of our all of our uh, uh, resources into into covering um, uh, Jared and, and Ivanka. But that, it wasn't the, that wasn't the case. And you had been doing this little doc series on MSNBC with Katie Turr. And I really loved it. It was called American Swamp. And the two of you would just kind of mosey around. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. And, uh, but it's, it was so watchable and so engaging. And, um, Thank and you. It, it seemed, and it seemed like, uh, th- I don't know if the, the, the two of you, um, did you, I can't remember on some episode or whatever. Did you guys say you went to high school together? Yeah, and- we grew up together out here in, uh, in Southern California in LA. We went to rival high schools, but we became buddies uh, late in high school. And then we're pretty competitive actually through college when we were both trying to break into uh, to this business. Right. And uh, lo and behold, we ended up working for the same huh. uh, network. And honestly, it was one of the greatest to do that doc series. American Swamp was one of the greatest privileges that I've had since I uh, started working for MSNBC and NBC. We had so much fun, um, despite the fact we were looking at, um, you know, on a daily basis for almost a year, how corrupt our government was and how screwed people were getting, uh, yeah. still getting. Is it is it possible, can people uh, go on on demand on MSNBC or is there any way, where can people see this? I think there were, the, the how long was the series? It was really just four or five. I, it was four episodes. We shot a fifth episode, but uh, which was going to air you know, now, but the pandemic obviously happened and, uh, and it got put on the shelf. Um, but, uh, the truth is the fifth episode, we had to pause because, uh, Katie gave birth to baby Teddy. Uh, and then, so after she came back from her leave, we finished the episode, but it never, it hasn't, it hasn't aired yet. I hope yeah, it'll so air one day. I remember that. So she disappeared first. <laughs> yes, it's true. And then you and disappeared. That- and I'm thinking, Whoa. Okay. These, okay. These two are doing some, some of the best work that's on news on television, on cable news. And all of a sudden there goes one, there went the other. And it's like babies. Know. It was babies. We, you had, we, a, you <laughs> had a baby too, right? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. We had it. We had a, a little girl and so she's doing good. She's about six months old now. Um, but I think to answer your question, I think it's, I think it's on Peacock on our new streaming mm, uh, okay. service, but I'm not positive. I'll, I'll find out and I'll, I'll tweet it out. Um, after we talk. So, um, okay. So she had a baby, you had a baby and you were, your beat was covering the babies. 
and the children <laughs> and the people. from our homes, so only at the house. Yes, but I'm just, but it 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 had to have had some kind of effect on on you. I, I don't know how any of us could have uh, actually get into some of these facilities. If I remember, let's see what I got here. In June, yes, in June of 2018. I think you were one of the first journalists that got inside one of these facilities on the border uh, for for the migrant children. I think it was in Brownsville, Texas. Correct me if I'm wrong. On That's right. First of all, how'd you do that? How'd you get in? How'd this visit uh, come about? And be, before you walked in, what were you expecting to see? And then tell us, uh, tell us exactly what it was like as you remember that moment when you became uh uh, an actual in-person witness. And I'm certain there must have been people that did not want you in there. Yeah, this is going to sound weird, but I got invited to go by the woman who is now Stephen Miller's wife. Um, her name is now Katie Miller, but was then Katie Waldman. And I had been working with her um, and the Department of Homeland Security on a documentary about uh, the reality of life along the southern border, because obviously, you know, people knew that Trump had disdain um, for immigrants from the day he walked down the elevator and called Mexicans rapists and criminals. Yeah. But but frankly, um, I was an unlikely eyewitness to all of this because I really missed the lead up to this story, uh, candidly. And there were other reporters like Julia Ainsley, who I now work with at NBC, or Caitlin Dickerson at the New York Times, or Lomi Creel, who's now at ProPublica, but was then at uh, the Houston Chronicle, who were really documenting the run-up to this policy. And so I had been working with with Waldman, now Miller, um, on this sort of reality check, uh, hour-long doc that was going to air on NBC about, is Trump right about MS-13? Do ranchers want the wall? Um, do drugs come through ports of entry or are they snuck through the desert? Um, what's it life like for people who, who have already been deported? Um, I, I really missed it, honestly. And so when this started to bubble over and um, it, it got onto television, uh, Chris Hayes, my colleague, was talking quite a lot about this. And then Jeff Mer Merkley, I think you might remember, tried to get into mm -hmm. this facility called Casa Padre. Right. Yes. He was live streaming Senator on from Facebook. Uh, Oregon. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And uh and they and they rejected him. Um I think that they felt like family separation. And again, this is June thirteenth, twenty eighteen, was about to really break into the national consciousness. And so Katie called me and said, We're gonna let people in. And she was honest about why. She said um, she didn't want Merkley and, and other congressional Democrats who were going to get in after they had first kicked him out. They sort of mm -hmm. went through then the official process to get in to be able to characterize it first. So they, they invited a group of journalists. And I was one of those journalists. I had interviewed Kirsten Nielsen with, with Waldman sitting right there. Um, so she knew me. We, we got to know each other. And uh, this place was a, a former Walmart, um, 250000 square feet. She, she called me and I basically scrambled. I got, I left LA. I got there, I think within, I don't know, 17 hours or something like that. Um, and, you know, you pull up to this place that looks like a Walmart uh, from the outside mm. and um, you walk in and uh, the first thing you see are, are murals of former presidents, including one of Trump that says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was a quote, you know, they had quotes from all the different politicians. Sometimes you lose a battle, but you find a way to win the war, whatever that meant. 
Mm. Um, mm. It, it was it was overwhelming. It's still overwhelming to think about walking into this place. Um, so it's a, it was an empty Walmart. So yeah. that means it was it had to have been off a regular highway. Oh yeah, like oh, yeah. There's the Home Depot. There was a McDonald's um, yeah. across the parking lot, a gas station. I mean, I went to these places because I ended up spending days there. But inside the former Walmart, the lobby's kind of like, it looked like a spa I write about in the book. It was like tile floors and it was mm-hmm. nice. And you put your cell phone into a Tupperware box. There was no cameras allowed inside, only pen and paper. Right. So before I went there, you know, I grabbed a little blue notebook at the Walgreens um, <laughs> that I that I, uh, that I I still have. It's sitting right here actually next to me on my desk that I sketched out what I saw. And what I saw was 1,500 boys, um, hundreds of them, maybe 400 of them, but only there because they had been separated from their parents systematically by the Trump administration, um, detained. And they were there for inside the building 22 or 23 hours a day, depending on the day of the week. They were only allowed outside for so-called recreation. And they were either as we toured this building, well, the first thing someone said to me when we walked in is make sure you smile at them. They feel like animals in cages being looked at. Mm. Um, Mm. And the weird part about this is this wasn't the facility where I saw children actually kept in cages. Um, But, but they were, they were in this bizarre world, which was a place with barbershops and video games and a pool table. And I saw a bunch of kids watching Moana, the Disney movie in a Mm. loading dock. Um, that used to be for, you know, commodities brought in and out at the Walmart. Um, people were doing Tai Chi in line for chow at the cafeteria. And, and, and this was a very overwhelming experience. It happened very quickly. They had a, a, a little medical facility. And I remember when I came out and talked to Chris Hayes that night, like maybe an hour after I walked out, I said to him, I said, you know, I've been in um, a prison and I've been in, jails and these children are ostensibly in a shelter but but really they're they're in, incarcerated um and and that's exactly what that was and it was it was only a couple of days later on father's day 2018 when i went inside uh the the processing center in mccallan a short drive away where i did see kids in cages laying on concrete floors um under those mylar blankets literally supervised by security contractors in a watchtower uh and 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 I'll never forget either of those experiences, you know, as long as I live. What is there to say about it other than they were only there for one reason, and that is that they were systematically taken away from their parents by the Trump administration for no other reason than to terrify other migrants from coming. Uh, and now, you know, I see it a lot more clearly today than I did back then. But what this was, was according to um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, it was government-sanctioned child abuse. And according to Physicians for Human Rights uh, that won a Nobel Peace Prize, it was uh, torture, a, a campaign of torture by the U.S. government uh, of these children. And and I had the misfortune of seeing it with my own eyes. Right. I think in the book, you you mentioned when you, the Walmart, uh, what was disconcerting about that is, um, a, as you said, yes, they're they're incarcerated, but there's also, like you said, there's the video games in the pool table and there are somebody's they've set up a screen to watch a kid's movie. Um, it had to have been kind of an, kind of an otherworldly experience. Dystopian. It was, it was, yeah. um, yeah. Like, how do it, you, yeah, how not, do you, not a movie. No. And how do you intellectualize, you know, what you've seen? And, and to be fair, you know, this is why I wanted to write the book. When I saw all this stuff, I could not believe it. You know, I mean, you hear about it in the news, 
there were a couple of newspaper articles about this that, that again, that I had missed. Um, but I, I didn't understand how the United States government was doing this to uh, kids and to babies. We later found out, you know, I, I was just looking back at your Twitter actually from, from those days. And, you know, you tweeted out the night that Rachel Maddow, I think it was on the 19th of June, the day before Trump signed the executive order, cried on the air about these tender aged yeah. shelters um, that that the babies were kept in. And w- what I learned, Michael, is that while this was on Donald Trump and, you know, every little detail that I could scoop up and document, you know, I put in this book as a, as a lesson to myself, frankly, about what I had missed. Um, this wouldn't have happened were it not for decades of failed policies by Democrats and Republicans. Right. Um, both. Yeah. I want to, I want to get into that because yeah, th- things like this don't just drop out of the sky. Nope. And, um, and then when you read this part, it's when you, when you get into this piece of, of your book and you can't help, but feel yourself, myself, um, where was I, uh, why wasn't I paying attention to this? You know, I was, I would just assume, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Cause I really think this is a critical point, but you brought up Trump the day that Trump came down the escalator on uh, June, was it June 15th, June 16th, something like that of uh, 2015. And he came down the, uh, the, the gold plated escalator there in Trump tower and then announced and then went off on his tangent about uh, Mexicans being uh, rapists and uh, murderers and just, you know, just awful, awful things. Within a number of days, Trump, an employee, as yourself, of NBC, uh, Universal, um, was fired. Um, he, he had a, I don't know what season he was in, 14, 15, 16 seasons of The Apprentice. That's right. And NBC decided that was just a bridge too far and um and and he was out and i thought wow good for nbc um and because it was so it was so vile the way that he put things but he could he then right away he began running on this he began running on excuse the language here but he he ran on his campaign platform initially the very first things he ran on essentially fucking up Mexicans. I'm going to, I'm going to fuck up Mexicans. I'm going to fuck up Muslims. And I think uh, that he coasted the victory in the GOP uh, primaries as a result of this, the, the millions and millions of people that wanted somebody to go in there and, and do that. And then in the general election, even though he didn't win the popular vote, there were still 63 million people that liked what they heard. And either they didn't mind, you know, his rhetoric or they actually liked it and they wanted them to, to carry it out. So how do you, how do you deal with the fact that these awful gross acts that you witnessed weren't just negligence, uh, you know, or oversight or stupidity, or as you said, years of misguided and failed policy or, you know, a lack of caring, you know, like uh, with Bush, with Katrina, uh, you know, as awful as that was, I think most people just took the takeaway from that was that George W. Bush just was out to pasture. He wasn't paying attention. He wasn't connecting. He didn't, he didn't act. Um, and that had been pretty much 
how he lived in his administration from the very day that he was handed the daily briefing in August of 2001. That I think something the heading of that was Bin Laden to attack in the United States. That was a month before 9-11. And then just continued his vacation and, uh, you know, just utter negligence. Um, but not actually, not policy. You know, it wasn't the policy of the Bush administration to, to say, uh, fuck New Orleans. Or, you know, ah, I, don't got, I don't have time for Bin Laden or whatever. It was just, you know, we know what that was. But this, Jacob, this, um, this was the plan. And he promised it very clearly. And it was who he was and who he is. And he got elected and he got to carry it out. If you just step back from that just a bit, um, it's chilling. Yeah. It, more, more clearly than I ever realized. And it's, it, you know, part of me thinks it's, it's a failure on my part as a journalist to see it. And I, I write a little bit about this, that um, the only time I've ever come into contact with Stephen Miller was in uh, either late 2015, I think it was early 2016 or late 2016, at some point in 2016, I saw Stephen Miller uh, talk at the Colorado Republican um, convention in the primaries. And, you know, I was focused on these things called unbound delegates. You know, was Trump going to be able to get enough delegates mm. to clinch the nomination? Right, right. And so I was there and I was going to do a report for Ra Rachel's show, Rachel Maddow's show. And I uh, up to the podium walks this guy and he starts screaming about uh, Kate Steinle, the young woman who was, was killed by and murdered by an undocumented immigrant in the Bay area. Right. And I mean, it was venomous, not just about Steinle's death, which obviously is tragic and horrible and horrific, but he applied the venom that he had Miller did at the time for, for that incident to immigrants, the way he was talking about immigrants. And he was talking about ending this, Thing, catch and release. And I looked over at somebody and I just said, who the fuck is this guy? Mm. Um, and I said, you know, this is psycho. They think they're going to win um, anything here. And sure enough, uh, they got, they got their clock cleaned by Ted Cruz at that event. They, I think they won zero delegates. And I went on the air that night with Rachel and I was kind of joking around about it saying, Oh, you know, it's called an offer in uh, sports. You know, Trump got destroyed. And we kind of had a chuckle about it and, and to Rachel's credit, more, more me than she. Um, but, you know, fast forward to the conventions, which I covered too from the floor and standing amongst the Texas delegation, you know, everybody wearing their big Stetson hats. Um, and I guess I thought ending catch and release, which Trump then again talks about from the stage at the convention there in Cleveland. Um, I, I didn't, I guess I didn't take it seriously. Right. Like I didn't know what that meant, but today, what I know ending catch and release meant um, was the systematic separation of thousands of children from their parents. It meant um, not allowing asylum seeking families to wait in the interior of the country until their cases were adjudicated. They took such offense to that. It was a grievous act upon Donald Trump and Stephen Miller and the people that supported his campaign. Um, and I had no idea what them talking about that meant. And frankly, I really didn't take it uh, seriously. And, and what catch and release didn't just, 
it didn't just become family separations. It became indefinite detention of families right now in ICE custody during Mm. COVID. Mm. It became expulsion of children from the United States without any due process, any legal oversight being held in hotels along the border. I mean, that's happening now. Um, it, It meant tens of thousands of people being made to wait in Mexico in some of the most dangerous cities. I mean, it meant all kinds of things. Family separations was the most uh, torturous, to use the word of, of physicians for human rights. Um, but they, like you said, I mean, you're right. They said it plainly and clearly what they were going to do. And I found out later that in the earliest days of the administration, Valentine's Day 2017, they met in Kevin McAleenan's conference room at Customs and Border Protection. This idea of family separations were brought up and these holdover officials from the Obama administration left shell-shocked mm-hmm. uh, was, the, was mm-hmm. the way that it was described to me. And from that point forward, I mean, John Kelly, who everybody is is being very sympathetic to now um, because of these stories about Trump disparaging veterans and in particular his son, uh, went on CNN and confirmed that they were going to look at separating children in March of 2017. I mean, this was this was the plan from the very beginning. And they said so. Yeah, they yeah. were open about it. Yeah, they were. They were. They didn't try to hide it. Right. A, a, a few weeks ago. Um, you were on uh, NBC and, and you you reported that, I think this was in uh, 2018, in um, May of 2018, uh, that there was a meeting in the White House. It was led by Stephen Miller and the administration officials um, were asked to vote. <laughs> they were asked to vote on, they want, I, I don't know if they wanted a cabinet vote on this or they wanted, uh, but they wanted people to themselves in the administration to go on the record as to whether or not uh, the Trump administration should, should separate children from their parents. Can you explain what exactly you know uh, in terms of what happened in that meeting and who was willing to raise their hand to say, yes, yes, this is a great idea. Let's separate kids uh, and babies and whatever from their parents. And, and this, will, this will really stick it to them and they will stop crossing the border. It's it, when I heard about this, and the reason I heard about this was the book came out, and I was contacted by a source who said, "Hey, you know, there was something that wasn't in your book that you should really know about." And so Julia Ainsley and myself started reporting on this incident, and this was right before Kirsten Nielsen signed the policy into place that that basically expanded the separation of families. There was this pilot program that had been going on in the summer of 2017 in the El Paso area. Um, but Stephen Miller was pushing and pushing really hard to do, to expand it border wide and to make it something that, um, every family would experience, uh, when they cross the border. And so Jeff Sessions issues this memo in April that says, we're going to do the zero tolerance policy. And by May, um, they still hadn't moved forward and Miller was really pissed, um, he there were in in multiple meetings, and we heard this from multiple people. He would consistently say, "It's un-American if we don't move forward. You know, we have to do this. the The country is at stake." And I'm paraphrasing: "The future of the country is at stake." But I mean, we've heard that type of language from him, you know, publicly. So um, they all gather in the Situation Room, which normally, by the way, is used to rescue people from disasters, mm-hmm. not create right, one. Right, and. Uh, he, he is, he's so angry that he, you say a vote, he forced a show of hands vote, like raise your hand if we're going to move forward. It couldn't just be nodding your head or just, yeah, 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 let's go around the table and say what you think. Right. Um, 
but they had this debate and, and Nielsen, um, to her credit, although I don't think she deserves much credit because this is on her as much as anybody else says, we're not ready to do this. We don't have the logistical capability. There's not enough bed space. I mean, there were all kinds of people, by the way, Michael, who were warning from inside the government, career civil servants, public health professionals. We can't do this. Not only is this going to damage the children, but we literally don't have the space. Um, Where are we going to put them? What are we going to do? How are we going to move them around the country to places like Michigan, you know, to shelters all over the place? We just can't. Yeah. Um, And... So Nielsen sort of voices her two cents and Miller forces the show of hands vote in the room. The invited guests, uh, Alex Azar from home, uh, health and human services, you, you know, you won't be surprised because they had to take the children in Jeff Sessions. You won't be surprised, but Mike Pompeo, the current secretary of state, John Bolton, um, John Kelly was in the room, Mark mm-hmm. short, who's the chief of staff currently um, to the vice president, uh, Don McGahn, who was the white house counsel. And the list goes on and on a sea of hands went up is how it was described uh, to Julia and myself. And the only one who kept her hand down was Nielsen. Um, Mm -hmm. And she left the meeting, uh, obviously defeated, knowing that um, everybody wanted to move forward with this. And despite her reservation, she signed the the policy into place anyways, a couple of days later. And that was the point that they started these wide scale separations. Um, and, And that's when I got to go into Casa Padre and see it for myself. And, and just one thing I want to say about that is Miller wanted it to be worse. In the time period of zero tolerance, around 2,800 kids were separated. Miller wanted that number to be closer to 25,000. Um, wow. By the end of the year, 2018, it would have been over 100,000 children if they would have separated everyone. And one separated child is too much. But I guess what I'm, the reason I want to tell you that is that's the underlying that was the underlying desire. That's the point um, because they wanted to they wanted to set an example to anybody who's thinking of coming into this country. We're going to rip your children from you, and there's no telling if you'll ever see them again. Isn't that that's what, they, what that's what they that's wanted, what, right? Oh yeah, and that's what Katie Miller, Katie Waldman said to me. This is an attempt to number one scare migrants from coming scare the shit out of migrants. I mean, you know, yeah. have word trickle back so that right. they they know that if they come here, we're going to do this to them. Um, and number two, scare the shit out of Congress so that they change the laws to allow them to indefinitely detain families so they don't have to, quote unquote, catch and release them. Um, and to expel children immediately when they get here. By the way, as I already told you, they're, they're doing these things anyways now. I mean, they just using COVID as an excuse, using public health law, basically cajoling the CDC into um, justifying this as a public health issue. They're not doing it anyways. Um, But everybody should remember what they're doing right now is what they wanted family separation to end up with. And they got their way. So, so Stephen Miller, I guess, so the, the foundation of this policy was cruelty. The more cruel we can be, uh, the better off we're going to have it in terms of less people crossing. But weren't we already at sort of an all-time low of people uh, trying to cross the border and and sneak into the country? I mean, was this really that – was it the kind of problem that warranted this kind of, of response? Um you know, I mean, and to people who are listening to this, I mean, you know, there's all, there's going to be a variety of opinions about 
how we should deal with immigration and how do we deal with people that, you know, are already here, et cetera. You know, and I said this too at the time, um, where, where, where are my fellow Americans? Where, where are my, where are my fellow Catholics? Because this policy is directed to Catholics and nobody wanted to frame it this way. But I said, people that come from Mexico that are coming from Honduras, uh, Guatemala, any place, any place in Latin America, they're going to be mostly essentially, uh, Catholics. Um, you know, uh, when Trump listed his, uh, what he called his shithole countries, again, more Catholic countries, Haiti, et cetera. Even some of the, the ones that he mentioned in Africa are the ones that are, that have actually a very large Christian population that almost rivals the Muslim population. And I'm like, where, where's the church on this? Where is, where, because, you know, I don't, I just, I don't know. I'm, I sound like I have felt about this since uh, you and I and everybody else were witness to this, but I can't wrap my head around how human beings and with all jokes aside about Stephen Miller or whatever. And, and, you know, I'm glad he found, you know, somebody to share his life with proof again to a single people listening to this, that there is somebody for everybody. So do not despair. Okay. Um, but, but seriously though, I, I, um, who are we as Americans? Who are we if, and what have we become that we allowed this to happen? And as we speak, as we speak today, it is happening today. It's, this hasn't gone away. Right. I mean, no, these kids still haven't been reunited with their parents. There's a group of a couple things, but there's a group, just the last thing first, there's a, there's a group of over a thousand, I think around 1500 that were separated before zero tolerance. And the record keeping was so poor that, you know, they had to go back and track down every single one of them to see if they had been reunited, where they were, what country they were in. And they still haven't been able to do that. And there are NGOs on the ground in Central America, literally searching for them. It's, it had, it's had to stop because of COVID. But I was just asked the other day to tweet out a link to a phone number for people who were separated to call uh, just to let these NGOs know um, if they've heard from their children, if they were back together with their children, where they are on planet Earth. Um, so the parents so, got got out and got to go back, but they couldn't take their kids with them. Well, there were 400 parents during zero tolerance alone that were deported without their children. Oh, um, in a whole mess. I'm just quickly on the on the Catholic Church. I, yeah. I do want to say, Sessions, when he announced this thing, just use the Bible to justify doing it. And the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops came out and condemned it mm. almost immediately, yeah. as yeah. did Archbishop Gomez, I think, here in L.A. But also, I mean, the Pope spoke out about this. Yeah. And the idea that they had this just came up for some reason the other day. Oh, because Sarah Sanders, of course, is now out on the book tour uh, with her book. You know, she went up there and said, oh, it's biblical to enforce the law. Mm. Um. What they did was 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 torture, right? In the words of these experts. Yeah, that's uh, that's what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you talked about, you know, cruelty. Adam Serwer said famously in his Atlantic piece, "The cruelty is the point." They, this is what they wanted to do. Um, it was their stated goal, and 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 they really, they ultimately, they ended up. I mean, they ended up accomplishing it. Well, I mean, 
okay, how do I, what do I say to that? So they, well, let me say, they've succeeded, let me say, they've succeeded let, in this and in, we yeah. feel powerless about this. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, yes, there's an election coming up, but jeez. Um, there's, there's one thing, Michael, you mentioned that I, that I want to yeah. actually yeah. just remembered, but, you know, you talked about how at the time that they did this, migration was pretty low. And you're right. At the time, there was net negative migration to Mexico. And the people who were coming to this country were coming mostly from Central America as as families. And, you know, I don't think we talk enough about um, what they were doing and why they came here. They, they're taking one of the most, they chose, eh, that's the wrong word. They embarked upon one of the most dangerous journeys on planet Earth through Mexico, leaving Central America and coming through Mexico mm-hmm. in order to seek refuge here in the United States. Um, they're not just fleeing violence and persecution. They're fleeing poverty and malnutrition, and in some cases, literal starvation. I went to Guatemala after I covered this at the border mm-hmm. to see for myself the conditions that some of the folks were leaving. And I went to Chiquimula and Zacapa, these two departments, basically states in Guatemala, where I saw the coffee industry decimated by climate change and climate variability, El Nino. Their cash crop is gone. Nope, there's no water. Nobody wants to leave their home. Everybody you talk to says, I want to stay. But they're, they, they are faced with uh, no other options but to leave and to come to a place where they believe it'll be refuge. And so, that, by the way, that's why I included the story of a family, Juan and Jose, in the book. Juan and Jose came to the U.S. and stepped onto American soil in San Luis, Arizona, looking for Border Patrol agents, like the, like the rest of these families. Right. They wanted to turn themselves in. They wanted to enter the asylum system, and instead, they're separated at the Yuma Border Patrol Station. Uh, Juan is sent to the high desert of California, to the ICE prison, Adelanto. Jose goes to the Harlingen Shelter in South Texas, and they didn't see each other again for nearly five months, and were it not for an immigration lawyer, who I've now come to put in the same category as first responders, they're as important as Mm. any first responder on any front line, likely Juan would have been deported without his son because he was coerced into signing away the right to reunify with the son by border patrol agents. Um, and they, who knows if they would have seen each other again. Uh, and, and that, when we talk about, you know, the context, that is the context. That's what was going on at the time. That's what people were fleeing. And I don't think you can look at this divorce from that. And, and, and they, as a father and son, Juan admitted to me freely, look, I came here twice before. Uh, and he laughed. We were sitting in a chain DC steakhouse and he left and said, but they didn't catch me. And I came as an economic migrant and he would go home and give his family the money. And this time when they came, it was, it was, it was fleeing threats of violence from cartels in his area in Paten, the department in Guatemala. And, and that time when they came, they were separated. And, and I heard Reverend Al, my colleague, um, give the, eulogy for George Floyd. And he talked about the rejected stone becoming the cornerstone. When you talk about George Floyd, you know, he might not have been this perfect example of a person who didn't deserve what he got, but it doesn't matter because nobody should receive the treatment that that man received. Right. And it really hit me hard when I started to think about specifically Juan and Jose who cares how many times he came to this country? Who cares what the reasons were that he came to this country? What we're talking about here is, is it okay for the government to perpetrate uh, torture on anyone, much less uh, 5,500 kids 
um, that we're coming here to seek refuge? And I think it's an obvious answer. I wonder why a lot of Americans, uh, why they don't look at this and say, um, actually, that's it's kind of, it says something very positive about us that people in these other countries, when faced with fear and um, the possibility of being harmed, there's one place they look to where they think they'll be safe, and it's us. It's it's kind of, that should give us some pause here to feel something good about who we are or how we're seen and how we've been for, you know, a couple of centuries in terms of, you know, I mean, most of us, people listening to this, unless you're Native American or, or your um, ancestors were brought here on slave ships, everybody else is a result of, of some form of migration. Um, and oftentimes uh, desperate to get to a place where they'll be safe, where they can eat food, where they can live. Um, and I, I think many of us have that story. They, they, and people listening to this, you know, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for somebody, some grandparent, great-great-grandparent, whatever it was, that took that risk and came here. To, to pull up the, the drawbridge now, um, and do it and do it in such a cruel way. I just, I don't know. You mentioned that this is not something that Trump just invented though. This is, a, this is decades of different administrations, Democrats and Republicans who have failed here. And, um, and I, I actually remember when Obama was, uh, was president, I remember reading some statistic that he had actually deported at that time more people or more Mexicans or I can't remember what the nationality was than anybody before him. And, uh, you know, uh, immigration rights groups or whatever, were calling him the deporter in chief. Yep. Right. Remember this? And, and it yes. was, and, and I, and, and so, you know, when you started reporting this and yes, they had to get the, the Walmart and they had to set these things up or whatever, but the, the kids in cages part of this, when you went to McAllen or whatever and saw what you saw, Again, the cages didn't fall out of the sky. Correct. The, the who built those cages? Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Wow. And and, and that's yeah. the truth. Um, you know, deterrence. You know, was sort of the underlying motivator of the of the policy, as we've talked about. Deterrence has been the policy of the U.S. government for gen literally generations, decades, um, leading up to this point uh, aggressively. Starting in 1994, Bill Clinton had this thing, prevention through deterrence, where the Border Patrol built the first wave of border walls. And literally in the document, you could read it in the book or look it up online, whatever you want. It says the intent is to force migrants through more hostile terrain so that they have to choose between basically a life or death situation or staying home. Uh, and then after 9-11, as you know, well, uh, Bush started DHS and you know, exponentially increase the size of the border patrol. And then Obama deported more people than any president in the history of the United States. And like you said, made z probably zero fans in the immigration activism community because of that built facilities, including the Ursula processing station in McAllen that I went into to, to handle searches of Central American refugee children. Oh, so they did that. Uh, they didn't build that processing station the night before uh, uh, Jacob Silveroff showed up. That's right. Uh -huh. That's right. Yeah. And, and, but it never, the point, 
the reason that I think this is so important is that none of those policies ever stopped people from coming to this country because people believe in the United States. It's why we have an office of refugee resettlement. I mean, all these separated kids got dumped into that agency because as my colleague Chris Hayes says, they were rendered unaccompanied from their parents. Um, but it was there for a legitimate reason that people do come here for for safety and security and a better life. And there are good people in these agencies like Commander Jonathan White, who I write a lot about, who warned on multiple occasions that separations would be disastrous. People like Jim De La Cruz, who kept an informal list of separations dating back to the Obama administration when there were limited separations for the well-being of the children if they came with a parent who was dangerous. Um, they took this stuff very seriously. And where another way that I aired in my reporting at the time was I always would say, man, what a, this is a man-made disaster. There was no plan um, to separate. There's no plan to reunite. And in part, that was right. But in part, it was wrong because people like Commander White, people like Claire McNulty at ICE um, warned that doing this would be a spectacular disaster resulting in, as one official told me, who was involved in the reunifications, um, a century of suffering for children who are traumatized at such a young age. And it became what the same person um, described to me as the greatest human rights catastrophe of my lifetime as a working as a U.S. government employee. Um, but it, 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 sh it didn't have to be that way. And actually, to the credit of all these people who do care about child refugees and immigrants that work for the U.S. government, um, you know, it could have been, as we already talked about, the numbers could have been so much worse. And because these folks fought it, um, I think, you know, they were able to stop the policy. So, so citizens speaking up and acting against this has had uh, some impact. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I remember, so June 20th, it was a week, it was a week to the day from the time I went inside Casa Padre to the time that Trump signed the executive order on June 20th. Um, 2018. And he specifically said, I didn't like the sights and the sounds of the children being separated. And remember, there was that ProPublica audio as well, the kids crying. But don't forget, there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets at these families belong together rallies in red states and blue states and big towns and, and small towns. I mean, all over the place. And a couple days after Trump signed the executive order, because of the public, I think it was probably the biggest reversal on a policy that they had to that point. Maybe, maybe over the course of the entire administration, still to this day, mm -hmm. um, because they, he he was so adamant that this was a democratic policy, which was a lie. Um, he was so adamant that they had to do this, etc. And and then they just changed their mind. Um, and then the judge ordered the end to the policy on the twenty fourth, and and ordered the reunification of all the kids. This, there's no way I'm a hundred percent certain of it. That this thing would have ended were it not for the you know American public standing up against it. Mm. So, Joe Biden, um, you know, what, what do you think? I don't, I don't exactly know what his position is on all this, or what he said, that, or what he said that he will do. But should he be inaugurated on January twentieth, what do you think is going to happen, and will it happen without uh, the Biden Harris campaign hearing from people that this is an important issue? I think some of the the bolder proposals to end family separation, like Julian Castro during the primary said, let's end 1325, which was the law that allowed them to separate families by charging the parents with a crime. Um, he hasn't come out in support of that. 
Um, but he has said, you know, he'll end the practice. He has said he'll do everything he can to, to reunite families and, and Senator Harris, to her credit, you know, challenged aggressively, I think, Vice President Biden during the debates about about their record on immigration, some of the stuff that we've talked about. Um, but I don't know. I mean, they're going to have a big challenge with not only the what to do about the parents who have been mm-hmm. through this experience at the hands of the U.S. government, um, but now tens of thousands of people that will be flooding into this country, um, frankly, uh, to seek refuge if they reverse the policy. You know, how are they going to care for them? Are they going to put them in those same facilities that that do you think they, do they have a policy yet? Have you heard it? No, not to that degree. Um, I mean, this is where I need you, you, the yeah. journalist now uh, yeah. telling us honestly, uh, and, you know, and it doesn't mean, you know, I'm, I mean, I've already said what I'm going to do in the election, but I'm but I think we, we all of us need to have our eyes wide open from this point on and 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 our voices heard. And so, you know, if if this hasn't been stated or if it's not, we're not clear. And again, I'm not asking you your opinion as a private citizen. I'm asking you as a, as a journalist on January 21st, what do you think is, is going to happen? Do you sense that this is a priority? Uh, do you think they don't want to talk about it during the, during the campaign? I don't know. I just, I can't get a beat on it. So, I'm, you know, you're following this. This is, this is front and center in, in terms of, of your attention as a journalist. Um, but we all, you know, we, we know where Trump is on this, but where is the opposition on this, the candidate that is running against Trump and what can we count on, uh, happening and don't, you don't have to give us, uh, I'm not asking because I want to hear some happy news here. I just, I want the truth so I can deal with it. And the people listening to this can deal with it. There's, I think that there's an extraordinary amount of concern amongst uh, the same immigration activists that were, um, oppositional to the Obama-Biden administration that um, they won't go far enough or that they haven't heard enough yet. And while I don't think that anybody's um, worried that they're going to do what Trump might do in the second term, I mean, Trump's already stated, he told Kirsten Nielsen on a Marine One flight to go um, console tornado victims in April 2019, I read about this, um, that he wanted to restart the policy. You know, Trump wants to bring back separations. And now and now it's just Miller and Trump and a lot of these other folks have fallen off. Do I think that that's what Joe Biden's going to do? No, absolutely not. Um, uh, not anything like that. But there are a lot of specific details about how are refugee children uh, going to be taken care of? What are they going to do about indefinite detention? The Obama-Biden administration wanted to have the same underlying goals uh, and fought in court to have the same underlying goals uh, as the Trump administration on two specific policies. And that was to detain families indefinitely to get around what's called the Flores Settlement Agreement. Um, this this government agreement that, ele- uh, that that calls for children to be released after 20 days in, in family jails, ICE family jails, uh, and to you know expel Central American children who get here at the border, just like they can to Mexican um, nationals. And so I haven't heard, and I'm sure someone will point out to me if I'm wrong, I haven't heard them say that they won't pursue those two policies again. Um, Where I do see people giving them the benefit of the doubt, though, is that Senator Harris has been very progressive and and really taken a different position on this, especially in the primaries, uh, than than Joe Biden did. 
Um, and if you look at their immigration plans on on the website and stuff that's been made publicly available, you know, they say the right things about no family separation. It's how is this stuff going to be implemented? What are they going to do about right. interior enforcements, ICE raids, stuff like that? So if people like myself, whether I'm right or wrong, will be proven later, but believe that, as you said, that yes, the, the Biden-Harris are not into tearing children away from their parents, but such a massive problem has been created and will they actually actively work to fix this? Or is is this going to, if you go two years from now, it's two years into Biden-Harris, and you're going to do a report, and basically what you're going to find is that this is in limbo. It never really got fully corrected. As you said, there, there's still not only uh, kids that have not been reunited with their parents, um, but you know, now, you know, people are, are coming across the border and they haven't figured out quite how to handle it, but this doesn't sound like limbo in no. terms of what's going to happen here. If, if a, a Biden administration isn't going to be active and aggressive in trying to undo and come up with a new plan as quickly as possible so that the suffering ends. Yeah. I, I mean, what I worry about, honestly, is I embarked on this project to learn more about what happened, what I saw with my own eyes, so that it never happens again. Juan and Jose agreed to participate in the book to learn more about how this happened to them so that it never happens again. And frankly, I do think there's a lot of, quote unquote, resistance uh, to this policy because uh, it's perceived to be Donald Trump's policy. Uh, And I worry that just like I missed how this happened, and so many, that's why I called it separated inside an American tragedy. It's an American tragedy. It's not Donald Trump's tragedy, this immigration system. And I worry that with a democratic administration, people will lose focus. There's a lot of things going on in this country, all worthy of our attention, but that people will stop paying attention to what's happening at the border because they believe that if Donald Trump loses the election, um, everything's going to be just fine. Mm. And history tells us that that's not right. Right, right, because, um, well, we've learned from the Iraq war, to bring up George W. Bush again, when it is proven that an administration has participated in torture, has sanctioned torture, has committed torture in our name, um, when the next administration comes into power, and in this case, you know, with uh, uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, they made a conscious decision to let it go. Uh, to not prosecute anybody who committed these acts of torture, who came up with the policy, et cetera, et cetera. We need to move on. We need to look forward into the future. And my fear, as you say this, is that, yes, you know, they're going to get, they'll be inaugurated and then it'll be all this, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and things are going to be better and we're going to need to print money because people are still going to be unemployed because of COVID-19. And um, this is just going to, this is just going to, I mean, even just, (laughs) this is what kill. I mean, I, you and I, I mean, I've, I've been, um, we've been back and forth for a number of weeks now, uh, trying to set up this podcast. And every time that we were set up to do it, something happened. I mean, something awful. I don't need to give the litany of, of what the month of August looked like, but it, it, and it's like, wow, I said to Basil, we're, we're part of the problem here. If we can't say we need to, we need to stop right now and talk about this. Because if we don't talk about it during the campaign, my fear is it won't be talked about much afterwards. There will be this limbo. All these kids will still be separated 
from their parents, not because Biden and Harris don't care. I assume they care, but they're going to have their plate is so full, you know, their plate is so full. They're, 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 they're going to be like, you know, yeah, we, we need to have Jacob Soboroff over for dinner. <laughs> and we, and we keep putting off the dinner because we've got all this other crap we're trying to deal with. And he's just going to remind us that we haven't dealt with this. But you're right. And I agree with you. And all the things that, that needed to be addressed in August were all worthy of taking a pause and, and coming back to this later. But that's what's so amazing about it is that this is, I think you mentioned Native American genocide and slavery. I mean, when we look back, when my kids look back on American history, I hope they're taught about um, family separations as one of, you know, I'm not comparing them, but in, in, in the line of ignoble acts by the U.S. government uh, perpetrated in the name of other people. Japanese internment, mm-hmm, right? Jim Crow. I mean, family separation at purposeful separation of children to damage them and the parents. You know that happened under Donald Trump, and it, it, we can't forget it. You know, yeah. Um, and and I think you're right. I think it's 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 important. Well, that's why I did the book because I wanted people to be able to turn to something when we get to a point where we forget. And I also wanted to do it for people like me. Who, 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 who didn't understand? Because tr- there were there are people that understood, and there are people that saw this very clearly and how we got to this point. Um, but I think that there are more people like me than there are who this was crystal clear for. Mm-hmm. And unless yeah. we keep coming back to it, it's going to happen again. You're very honest in the book too, and it's kind of surprising to hear a journalist say that I could have done better, or maybe I screwed this up, or. Uh, I didn't, you know, I should have been paying better attention. They're kind of sort of self awareness and self analysis in this is pretty. I mean, um, I'm a guilty Jewish uh, boy. <laughs> yes, well, that has that has served us well uh, for many years, <laughs> not just with you, but others uh, who've tried to uh, get us on the right moral path. Uh, Jacob, if you don't mind, uh, hang on just for a second here. We have to acknowledge uh, one of our underwriters uh, uh, who helps uh, support this podcast. So uh, today's uh, underwriter is NetSuite. I'm sure everybody's heard of NetSuite. They're the world's uh, number one uh, cloud business system. And so NetSuite, which is uh, run by Oracle, they became over time the the number one uh, cloud business system in the world. Uh, They've got like 20,000 plus companies uh, that use them, use NetSuite. And I want to encourage you to try them out. There's a free way to do this. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing where having something like NetSuite, you know, you can run your whole thing from your phone, basically, and you can work wherever you want to work. This This is one of these things that has helped us, especially during this pandemic, doesn't matter where you are, what your situation is, doesn't matter how small you are or big you are, whatever, having NetSuite available where you've got all your inventory, you've got all your e-commerce, your financial stuff, everything in one place. So here's what I'm asking you to do. You can get a free guide from them online. It's called seven actions that businesses need to take right now. So you can schedule your own tour of NetSuite uh, by Oracle by going to netsuite.com. Okay. NetSuite is spelled N-E-T 
S-U-I-T-E, NetSuite, capital N-E-T, and then capital S-U-I-T-E, just like it sounds, netsuite.com slash rumble. You got to put the slash rumble in there. Anybody that wants to support me, you know, they're on the on the side of the angels. I hope you know that. Uh, and I would not uh, allow any underwriter that I, I didn't think uh, was doing something good for people and providing a service. And that's what they do. And I'm proud and honored to have them as an underwriter of this. So don't forget, get your free guide from them and, and schedule your free tour at netsuite.com slash rumble. All right. Don't forget the slash rumble, netsuite.com slash rumble. And, uh, and be sure and um, thank them for uh, supporting rumble with Michael Moore uh, so that my voice and your voice uh, can, can be heard. Okay, uh, we're back here with uh, Jacob Soboroff of NBC News and the author of the new book, Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. So if you go away, you know, the, this issue isn't going to go away. But, you know, is NBC going to still be supportive? Are they going to say after the inauguration, you know, Jacob, uh, we need you to do this, this and that, and and we need to lessen the time on this beat? Um and because if you go, and you know, like you said, there's the reporter from the Times and the woman who was at the Houston Chronicle, it's not ProPublica, but uh, this isn't going to be, no one's going to talk about this. Everybody's going to be all happy, happy, happy about Trump's gone, Biden's in, look, uh, money's being printed and given to people who need it, uh, landlords can't evict people, all those things we need right now. Um, and, and, and there's people, why are you bringing this up? Why, look, Biden, they'll take care of it. And I, you know, the Obama administration didn't take care of what uh, Cheney and Wolfowitz and, and Bush uh, did, Rumsfeld. Um, and if you don't take care of it, if you don't, if you don't Nuremberg this thing, it just guarantees it's going to happen again. And um, I, so I worry about that. And I worry that your voice, while it, you will go on to do good things and, um, uh, you know, you'll be uh, uh, back in the, in the car, in the van, whatever, with Katie off doing another great doc series. This will all be good for us, but it will not be good if, uh, if you disappear on this particular beat. I, I don't intend to, and I, and I, but I also think that um, what people should know is that I'm not the authoritative voice on this. You know, I think that there, in addition to being literally thousands of stories that each one of these children will, I hope one day um, tell and be able to overcome the trauma to tell them. Um, there are other journalists who frankly are better suited with their own lived experience to tell these stories than I am. And we should listen to them too. Um, we should probably listen to them more than we listen to me. I just happen to be there and I'm telling the story because I witnessed this with my own eyes. Um, I'm a white dude from LA who grew up really privileged. And there are a lot of other people who have different perspectives on this that, you know, I think are, are probably arguably more important and more informed um, than mine. And, and credit to also my new, my, our new big boss at NBC, Cesar Condi, who is going to, you know, has a plan to diversify our newsroom to be 50% people of color. Um, I think that, you know, to hear those voices tell this story and, and not just mine, um, is, is exactly what we need. And I think that that's the direction, you know, speaking as our news organization, we are headed and I'm, I'm really excited about that. So you think even if you're not there, there will be people at NBC that will not um, let this be ignored. No, I can't see how, I can't see how, um, 
knowing the reporting we've done on this and now having a you know, having a deeper understanding of it. It's not just me. I mean, this was a team effort. If you look at the list of people who were on the 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 Hillman Prize when we all accepted it as a news organization for this, it was like three columns long and dozens and dozens of people that worked on this story. I think I became associated with it because I just happened to be there on those big days. But there are a lot of people that I work with that care very deeply about what happened. And I think they feel the same way I do. Well, I think you're being very humble. And thank you for that. But, um, you know, I watch too much news and too, too much, too much. <laughs> Take a step outside. Well, I know, please, people, you do have to turn it off every now and then and get outside. And, wear your mask. Uh, yes, wear your mask, wash your hands. But, but Jacob, you know, we've never met. Um, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm a consumer of, of MSNBC and, of course, CNN and, I even turn on Fox News because I want to know what they're up to, but um, but you, you have a unique voice, and um, it's it's clear, uh, and you know, and despite all the the things that you've told us here in terms of what you where you wish you had been earlier, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, there there are there's you and there's there are other people there, uh, NBC and MSNBC that we are grateful, uh, you know, for your presence and, and grateful to your, the people that are, that you answer to that have decided to make these things, uh, important issues. And, um, so that's what I'm saying when I say, I don't, I don't want your voice in this, uh, to go away. Uh, you're very generous to acknowledge all the other people and, and, and we will stay on top of that and we will, post what the other people are doing on this. We're doing great work, but you know, I just, and maybe I'm sure you've been asked this question, you know, you're on a, well, I won't, I won't call it a book tour. It's very, I feel bad for every author this year who's uh, not been able to go on a book tour, but, but if, you know, we're doing this virtually and it works, but you know, for I'm you in my laundry room, to be honest. Okay. Right. And I'm guessing within the last 24 hours, uh, you changed a diaper. Yes. Uh, I think within the last uh, 30 minutes before I came on with you. Yes. Okay. So um, there you go. But all kidding aside, you and your wife um, with your four-year-old and now your six-month-old, um, how do you not have um, empathy is just the wrong word. How do you not have, how do you go into that facility in McAllen, Texas, in Brownsville, and, 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 and then go to Guatemala and see the conditions there, et cetera. How do uh, how, uh, I mean, and I, I think all of us, anybody, any of us, regardless whether your kids are grown or, or you've just had a baby, uh, just put yourself in the shoes of, of people who have had to lose their children, have no idea where their children are. The children have no idea where the parents are. The, the, the government doesn't even know how to find the parents amongst millions and millions of people in Central America, in Latin America, um, you know, that this dystopian society that you, that you felt that you were witnessing when you walked into that, uh, into that vacant Walmart, not so vacant, but because it's filled with these kids. Um, there, but for the, as they say, the grace of God goes you because it could be you. It could be. And, mm -hmm. and, and if our country ever, if we continue to devolve, I'll just put it that way. Um, 
if if authoritarianism um, and modern modern day what we'll call modern day fascism, not the kind from the twentieth century, but a kind of a um, there was this book I read back in the eighties uh, from a guy named Bertram Gross. It was called Friendly Fascism, and he was trying to imagine what would fascism in the twenty first century what will it look like? Because he was saying, you know, it's not going to come with boxcars loaded with people. Um, and you know, these, uh, extermination camps, et cetera, that it's going to, he said, it's going to, this is what he was, he said, it's going to come, it's going to come with a TV show and a smiley face. And that's how they're going to try to get across what they want to do in terms of the cruelty and the harm to people. And so here you are as a parent and a parent of a baby. Um, and it's not far-fetched in my mind for you to assume as you're there in your laundry room with hands that just changed a diaper um, that at any point there could be a knock on your door and uh, not because your children are a threat, but because they know the way to set an example to do this to Jacob Soboroff, you know, um, that could, it's not, we have too many history and too many examples in history where this has happened to people who never thought it would happen to them. And what would that look like? And what would you and your wife do while the rest of us were just trying to protect our own selves and not worry about you or your wife or your kids or whatever, because things have gotten to the point where everybody's just looking out, looking out for themselves. It's hard to bring yourself there mentally. I think and it's hard, you know, obviously having seen this myself and then come home to my family, you know, these are things that I have thought a lot about. Um, but the way that, you know, I try not to focus on, on that. Um, and I think that I, I certainly have some measure of, uh, whatever PTSD from being there and experiencing this and thinking about, you know, what is that, what would that look like? I think we all did really. I mean, you didn't have to go there like me. Everybody's if you don't have your own children, you've been a child, had a parent or siblings or, or whatever, and can imagine what, what that must be like. And I think that, first of all, what I went through is nothing compared to what these children went through and what the parents went through and the families went through. You know, and I always remind myself of that. But secondly, you have to be open and you have to allow yourself to be open and not be afraid of confronting what this is. And actually, back to my bosses for a second, like I'm grateful to some of these people that you know, you're alluding to like, like Phil Griffin and Noah Oppenheim, who didn't stop me when I walked out of McAllen and said, those are cages. I don't know any other way to describe them. They allowed me to express as a journalist, you know, there's this concept that you have to be neutral. And I don't, I don't believe that that's possible. I think we all come to stuff with our own set of lived experiences. And I was there as a father of a young kid. And so they didn't tell me to hold back. They told me only to be fair. And I think you can both have an opinion and a vantage point, but also be fair and analyze, you know, what you're seeing in a truthful way. And that's been my goal. And that's how I just try to keep level-headed about this is that I'm not going to try to create some false equivalency. I'm not going to try to pretend like this isn't happening because it is. And you have to be prepared to see it and understand it. And and so like what you described, 
uh, is terrifying, but you can never really, you can't really turn away and pretend like, pretend like it's not. I, I, that's what I learned covering this experience. You know, I learned a lot about being a reporter. I never went to journalism school, but this was really, I think, probably the best journalism school experience I could ever had. If I were you, I mean, I would never just, I would never think, I would never say to myself just because, oh, I'm at NBC. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm safe. I'm going to be okay. If Trump does get another four years, and I've said over and over on this podcast, please don't assume that he's going to be uh, defeated. Um, I agree. You, you, everybody needs to wrap their heads around uh, what would four more years of Donald Trump look like. And again, history is full of examples of, of, of journalists. Right now, you don't have to go back that far. In other countries right now, uh, there have been more journalists uh, killed, uh, wounded, um, disappeared uh, than ever before. And, um, and, to, and, and you can't just take this attitude, well, you know, we're, it's this is the United States, Mike. Come on, this is going to happen. And I, you know, I, years ago, I ran across this um, editorial that ran on the front page of the uh, Berlin Jewish Weekly uh, the week after Hitler was essentially elected um, by the German people. And the editorial said, okay, everybody calm down. Yes, this is bad. Uh, he's not good. He's not good for us, but you know, don't be exaggerating. Don't go, don't be saying that he's going to do this, that, or whatever. It, the, remember this is Germany and we as Jews in Germany are, I mean, we're not, it's not, we don't live in ghettos like they do in Poland. Uh, we, the, the editor of one of the largest daily papers is Jewish. The head of the symphony is Jewish. Uh, we have Jewish judges uh, on the, you know, the Supreme, whatever they would call the Supreme Court there. So look, folks, uh, we are integrated in this. We have, we have Jewish war heroes from World War I. Uh, this is not going to happen uh, to us. And, and it's chilling to read this. Um, and there, uh, I, I, years ago, I read this to a friend of mine um, who is his uh, parents and thus himself, were survivors of the Holocaust, and he being a child of survivors. Um, and he said they're, they're, during, the, uh, during the, the war um, in Brooklyn, uh, there was a saying that, um, that the, the uh, and this was, it was a saying amongst the, especially German Jews who had escaped, got out, came to the U.S., that the, the pessimists, had come to Brooklyn and the optimists were in Dachau. And wow. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm all for optimism and hope. Um, but all of us need to pay attention when things like this, things that you've been covering happen. And, um, and we need to be aware that, that societies that, you know, were democratic at one point and were very advanced Germany first country on earth to have universal health care back in the late 1800s. I mean, the, the, the highly advanced, highly intelligent. And um, to think that it can't happen here or anywhere else is a foolish, foolish place to be. Um, and so that's why I asked you the question, because I, um, I, I, I'm not 
asking people to get all freaked out and start thinking, you know, where's our plan B? Which which is the easiest border crossing into Canada? And suddenly we're all in an episode of The Handmaid's Tale. But, <laughs> but I, but I, I do, I, I, I guess I wanted to hear from you yeah. whether are you aware of that? Are you? Um, I don't want to say worried, but are just is there enough awareness amongst journalists that um, that it may not be safe at some point here in the future. And, um, and what's our plan to deal with that? And, and that's why the first step always is, especially as, as in this friendly fascism uh, book that was written in the eighties, one of the first things is, is they're just, uh, they'll just stop covering this or they'll stop covering that, you know, and it won't be, it won't be, you won't really notice it. It'll just be, you know, oh yeah, Jacob's doing really good work on this, this or that or whatever. And, and as time goes by, we forget and we move on and we got our own problems. And I'm sorry to, to take so much time setting this up for you, but, but these are the things I worry about. And I think that it, again, it's, uh, it's foolish to not consider we live in a very difficult world and it's been that way for most of the time humans have have been running the show. And so uh, that's why I want people, I want to do this. I've been wanting to do this all month, this podcast, this episode. And, and as we are coming to a close here, I don't, I don't want it to go away. I want people to read your book. I want them to discuss this during the campaign. Um, if there are town halls, I want this question asked of the candidates and let them know that we, the people, will not have this sort of thing going on uh, in our name. Thanks, Michael. I, I think, you know, I, I don't have an escape plan, um, but I do put one foot in front of the other every day. And I'm driven by a desire to report the facts that I see on the ground. And, you know, most important to me is that, you know, you can't be afraid to call things what they are. And um, what I saw is what I saw, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, both sides it, and I didn't have to do it at the time, and I'll, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that now. That's for sure. Um, and I think that as a journalist, as you look at and you judge both Joe Biden and Donald Trump in particular, you can't do so without looking at uh, how they've dealt with with this issue, um, and you have to do so with a moral compass. And if you don't, you know, frankly, I just don't understand it. And, and that's why I'm so, I'm just grateful, not only to you to have this conversation, but to be a journalist in this time, to be doing this work. And there are a lot of people out there who could have a seat at this table and be able to cover this stuff. And, and I have the privilege of doing so. And, and for that, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm going to continue to do it. Well, that's, thank you. I hope, I hope you do. And I, um, you mentioned how those immigration attorneys are, you should be, they should be considered frontline first responders, workers in, in terms of protecting people in their lives. I see you and other journalists in that same category. You are on the front lines. You are our first line of defense because, and I agree with you, this whole uh, concept of subjectivity versus objectivity, we're human beings. Of course, we're yeah. subjective. The, your, your, your requirement, what we, the people require of you, and I'm sure, hopefully, the network and the news department requires the same thing, is that you just tell us the truth. Tell That's us right. the facts. And, and, then, and then, yes, of course, tell us what you think. We want to know what you think. You've been there. 
I want to hear your subjective opinion. And, and your opinion might be right and it might be wrong. Who, you know, that will decide that, you know, history will decide that. But the facts are the facts. And, and if we don't have that, we, the people, we're not going to McAllen. You know, we're not going to Guatemala. We're not going to see our tax dollars at work. The only way we see that is, is, is through you. And, and my plea to cable news, to MSNBC, to CNN, uh, to the networks, um, is please, 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 you know, we need more journalism, more reporting, you know, yes, yes, have me on, uh, to blab <laughs> about this or that, have your panels. Yes. Oh, no, I'm not saying don't do that, but whatever money you have, uh, that you can spend on journalism and stories and, 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 you know, sending reporters to the places that we, the people can't go. It's a primary obligation of, of what you're doing. And, and we, we need to demand it. We, the people need to tell you and the networks and the news gathering, uh, operations the new york times i still have the paper delivered to my doorstep my analysis me too i got la and new york <laughs> yes right i want to hold the paper and i'm always saddened on a day when the paper is really thin because i know what's going on in the world isn't thin all that's happening right now that paper it should be chock full and yes you can go online and this and that or whatever but we all we need to pay attention to you and other journalists and the journalism departments uh, at our networks and newspapers uh, and podcasts that uh, we have a job to do here. And um, I don't mean to put this all on your shoulders, but I'm just saying <laughs> as we go, uh, uh, don't, uh, don't be disappeared. Don't disappear yourself and, um, and keep doing uh, the great work uh, that you're doing. I'm not going anywhere. Thank you, Michael. This has really been a, a, a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Jacob Soboroff, his book is entitled Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. Um, there, there, that is not a subjective statement. Every word in the title of this book is a fact. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful book. And it's not just a whole depressing bunch uh, of scenes. Of what it, it, it is the... Uh, the story of the father and the son and, the, and the, the activists and the people that are actually making a difference and have actually slowed this thing down and and um, saved lives, I think. So um, thank you for writing this. Thank you for your reporting and, um, uh, and uh, enjoy changing the next diaper, which is coming up in about three minutes. Uh, probably two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> All right, Jacob, thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, uh, to, for listening to this episode of rumble with michael moore i am the michael moore in the title of this uh of this podcast and i want to thank our executive producer basil hamden our editor and sound engineer nick Quaz, all of you uh, uh for listening uh to this and so thank you to those of you who care and who are doing things in your own ways to uh to make a difference um we'll talk to you soon see you then Strange